Scripture is known for its great questions. Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, God asked Adam, where are you? God knew where he was. He knew his geographical location, but he wanted to ask Adam's spiritual location. Now that was one of separation because of his sin. Job 38, 4-5, after Job questioned God for many, many chapters, God turned the tables and asked him a question. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? In Matthew 6.15, Jesus asked his disciples the all-important question, but who do you say that I am? Our eternal destinies hinge on how we answer that question, whether we acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah or not. In Mark 8.36, Jesus said, What is the profit of man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Romans 8.31 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? There are a lot of great questions in the Bible. Psalm 42, verse 5, in my estimation, belongs in that category of great questions. It says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Indeed, scholars regard Psalm 42 and 43 as a unit. Okay? So they were meant to be put together and read together. And between these two short psalms, that same question, identical question, is asked three times for emphasis. Why are we cast down and in despair? What the psalmist is talking about is more than just a, a momentary occasion of sadness, but something more, something a little deeper, discouragement. Ever felt that way? The question is profound because it touches on the universality of despair. The universality of despair. That question resonates, I think, with all people because all of us feel this sense of discouragement, deep discouragement at times in our life. Whether you're old, whether you're young, whether uh, men or women, ancient times or modern times, it affects great leaders like Abraham Lincoln, entertainers like Robin Williams, the wealthy and powerful like Princess Diana of England, and the average person. It's part of the human condition as it comes as a result of the fall of Adam and Eve, that as a result of their fall, we come into this world as broken people, and those cracks only magnify as we go throughout our life. And our brokenness affects both our bodies and our spirits. And our brokenness is compounded by the sinful actions that others might do to us throughout our lives, as well as the actions of the world. So it's amazing to me that even with all of our advances in science and technology, 
since that question was asked 3,000 years ago, there's still this universality of despair. This question also kind of touches on the mystery of despair. No one wants to feel this way. Who signs up to say, you know, I want to feel really down in the dumps? I've never met anyone in their right mind who would rather do that than be filled with happiness and joy. And indeed, we're always trying to figure out how do we find a solution to the discouragement and despair that we face. You look in Ecclesiastes, the very first chapter of that Old Testament book. It begins famously, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And the rest of that book just walks through various ways that people try to answer that question of why we are cast down and in despair, walking through all different solutions that people come up with, but end in futility. And discouragement is not just something that happens to non-Christians or people who don't believe in the Lord, but it happens to believers as well. It should be stressed that the writers of Psalm 42 and 43 were the sons of Korah, musicians who were believers in the Lord. And in fact, the psalm begins with those famous words. You guys have probably heard these words before. As a deer pants for flowing waters, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. So these individuals wanted to know God more. They wanted God to fill them to their peak But they were not. I think many of us would echo their sentiment at points in our lives where we long for more of God, but we're caught in a web of despair and depression. We're in the midst of this series called Jesus is Greater, finding hope in the midst of life's struggles, and we're, we're covering topics like anger and doubt and forgiveness and fear, areas where we struggle in, in different ways. And today we're going to discuss depression. What does Scripture teach about this topic? And let me clarify, when I say the word depression, I want to use it broadly. I'm using it to speak of times of deep discouragement that most, if not all of us, feel at times. But I also want to recognize that within that broader group, which I would put most people, there are also folks who go through very intense and very deep, serious times of doubt and despair. What a psychologist might call major depression or clinical depression. So when I speak here, I'm trying to balance both audiences. I believe scripture and experience teach us that this is kind of, as I said earlier, part of the human condition, but also that certain individuals experience to a much greater degree in a much more serious fashion. And so in the message that I'm giving here today, I want to focus on depression kind of on the more serious end, okay? But I think it applies to all people. And before diving in, I just want to make a couple of preliminary points. I feel like I need to say this. Two points that I want to make. And first is the, the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. God has given us all that we need for knowing Him and following Him. Certainly, there is insights to be gained 
from other fields like psychology and other things. And, and, and we recognize that you ever heard the saying, all truth is God's truth? And so if there are things that we discover as human beings about the world or ourselves, we recognize that those, th- those things are just as truthful as the things that we find in Scripture because they both have the same source, right? And so we can gain insight from what other sources tell us. But the focus that I want to put on is Scripture. God made us, and He knows what we need. And He has given us power for dealing with all things, including depression. 2 Peter 1.3 says, promises, divine power has, granted, has, divine power has been granted, granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. So I want us to see from Scripture that God's Word gives us hope. Amen? And there is power to be found in the indwelling Holy Spirit to give the believer hope, regardless of what they face. God has not left us in the dark. Jesus is greater. It's not just a kind of cool thing to put in a sermon series, a trite little saint. I believe it is reality. So God has not left us in the dark, even with a challenging issue like depression. Okay? So the sufficiency of Scripture. This leads to the second point, though. Depression is a challenging issue. I think it's the hardest area of the things we've been talking about so far in this series. And I have to admit, it's been something I've... Oh, man, this this is hard. This is tough. And I've been trying to crank out some extra... Labor, because it's hard. This is a hard topic. It's challenging for a lot of reasons. For one, there's a lot of overlap with the areas that we've been talking about so far when we've been dealing with guilt and regret and forgiveness and grief and anxiety and so on. Sometimes it's hard to distinguish what those things are and how they affect us and depression. But I think we know from experience that there is something different about it, right? There is something different from depression and guilt and so on, even though we know there's overlap. It's also difficult because it's hard to know sometimes how those things interact with one another. We're pretty complex people, aren't we? And so sometimes it's hard to know, does guilt cause depression or does depression cause guilt or is it both? How does all that stuff work? It's challenging. I think we really have to work hard at understanding what Scripture says and work hard at understanding ourselves and who we are and to be honest before God and what the Word of God teaches us. And to apply it to our lives. And finally, depression is challenging because it's hard to know how much is caused by bodily factors like our genetics. And how much of it is spiritual? You know, God has made us as spirit-body combinations, right? We're both. And the Bible teaches that the body affects the spirit and the spirit affects the body. And it's tough to know how they interact. 
And there are differences of opinions within the Christian community about how much do we put on the bodily stuff and how much we put on the spiritual side of things. They're bright, godly Christians who know a lot about these things, who differ on how much of this is caused by biological factors and how much is caused by spiritual factors. Should a Christian use medication and so on? So as a result, there's not, in my opinion, not a, as much conversation about this topic as there should be within the church. Probably because people want to avoid conflict. Now, my heart's desire is not to stir up conflict. But I really believe that hopefully this might be helpful for us. And so I want to bring it out and talk about it that it might help broaden our understanding as well as equip us to love each other and minister to each other more effectively. But at the same time, I ask you, please, to give grace. So if I say something that maybe you disagree with slightly, or I leave out something, or don't do this, that you'll recognize that we're united by greater truths of the gospel. Amen? And so let's humble ourselves and come before the Word and grow each other as a community and how we can build each other up because we're going to see this something that affects many of our lives. And I'm going to go ahead and give a spoiler alert. It's two messages. All right? Two messages. So I'm, I, you know, I might, I'm not going to leave you hanging at the end here. I'm going to go ahead and say I'm going to leave you hanging at the end, okay? But there's just so much to talk about. There's no way I can do it in one message. All right? So you've got to be here, though, for both messages. That's just the way it is. There's just so much that will be left out if you only come for one. You'll think, man, there's a lot of gaps here. Well, you've got to come for both. There'll still be gaps, but there'll be less gaps if you come for both. All right, so enough of the preliminary stuff. Let's, let's talk about what is depression. I think that's where we should start. I think most people have a general idea of what depression is. But there are also a lot of misunderstandings, and I want to kind of cut away the fog a little bit. To start, depression is different than sadness. It's different than sadness. Everyone experiences sadness over different things that might happen in your life or something happens and a sad, you know, it affects you and, and it'll last for a short period of time. You know, you can think of different things. Have a bad day at work. Have a terrible grade that you get back at school. Someone makes a a rude comment, maybe you get the flu and you're out for a while, or maybe your favorite pro football team gets crushed by the New England Patriots. <laughs> we needed a laugh, brother, so I'm sorry, man. Just, thank you. Depression is different, though. Depression is where your feelings of sadness persist over a longer period of time. And they are much stronger. And Scripture recognizes the profound implications that this has on us. That the pain we experience in our spirit can be worse even than what we experience in our bodies. Proverbs 18.14 says, a man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear? Proverbs 15:13 says, "A glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart, the spirit is crushed. Crushed. Isn't that a, just a, a vivid image there? 
Some of the psalms are known as lament psalms where the writer will express their grief and their sorrow of things in their lives. And I imagine that some of these psalmists may have been battling depression. Now in a lament psalm, usually the psalm will close by a word of praise and trust in God. They express their griefs, but at the end they turn back to their trust in God. And that's a model for you and I. But it's interesting. Have you ever read Psalm 88? I invite you to turn there to Psalm 88. This psalm is unique. We're not going to read the whole thing. This psalm is unique. It's different than the other lament psalms because at the end of the psalm, there is no explicit expression of confidence in God. Verses 13 to 18. Psalm 88. These are the closing words. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up. I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. And that's the end of the psalm. There is no expression of trust. This individual was really in the pits of despair. Darkness, as he says there, was his only companion. And people who go through depression speak of just darkness engulfing them. So while Scripture does not obviously lay out any kind of medical diagnosis of depression, it does affirm that people experience deep, lasting pain in their hearts. Amen? Let me just add a couple insights, though, from modern psychology. According to the recent edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is kind of the official guideline of the American Psychological Society, a major depressive order includes at least five of the following symptoms, and it must last at least two weeks. Depressed mood most of the day. Markedly diminished interest or pleasure in almost all activities. In other words, things that you used to enjoy, you just don't enjoy them anymore. There's kind of a numbness in your spirit. Number three, significant weight loss or gain. Number four, insomnia or hypersomnia. You can't sleep or you sleep too much. Psychomotor agitation or retardation. In other words, what that means is kind of unintentional or purposeless movements. You're, you're pacing around the room all the time or you're wringing your hands. Just kind of purposeless movements. You don't even notice yourself doing. Fatigue or loss of energy. Feelings of worthlessness or excessive inappropriate guilt. Eight, diminished ability to think or concentrate. An indecisiveness that you have. Or number nine, recurrent thoughts of death, suicidal thoughts, but without a specific plan. So depression is where a person exhibits, and I want to emphasize, many of these traits, okay, might be sitting there thinking, well, I have some of that once in a while. These are many of these traits, and it stretches out over uh, a long period of time, not just a bad day or two. 
I should also go point out the depression will vary with frequency and intensity. Some people have one bout of depression, and that's all they ever have. Some people have recurring bouts. Some people will have a milder form of depression, while some folks go through it so deeply and so debilitatingly they can hardly do anything in life. So sometimes if a Christian goes through a, a period of, of discouragement, doubt, or despair, depression, the things that they used to enjoy, like reading their Bible or praying, going to church and worship, they, they just have a lack of interest in those things. If I were to define depression in my simple terms, I would say it is a partial, if not complete, lack of hope. It's just a lack of hope. You feel that you are stuck in a pit. You can't get out. So how many people experience depression? Well, its impact is widespread. Most people are going to be touched by it in some way or another. Either yourself or a loved one happens to Christians, happens to non-Christians. Uh, sometimes it's called the common cold of mental ailments. Seven percent of adults experience a major depressive disorder. The lifetime risk um, throughout your lifetime, seven percent at any given point, but the lifetime risk is seventeen percent. Women are twice as likely as men to experience this. And by the way, it's estimated to cost eighty billion dollars annually with lost work, productivity, health care cost. Depression can lead to other problems and takes a tremendous toll. Here is a list of some of the possible complications that come from having depression: alcohol or drug abuse, headaches and other chronic aches and pains, phobias, panic disorders anxiety attacks, trouble with school or work, family relationship problems, social isolation, overweight or obesity due to eating disorders, raising the risk of heart disease and type 2 diabetes, self-mutilation, attempted suicide or suicide. So it should be pretty plain, right? But this is widespread and has a tremendous impact on people. If that doesn't grab our attention, I don't know what's going to grab our attention. So, seeing how widespread it is, see how devastating it can be to people's lives, I think the natural question is to ask, then, how do we avoid this? How do we overcome it if it is something that is part of our lives? So I think that goes to the question of, what causes depression? And what are the remedies that we can look and see in Scripture? So as you look at Scripture, I want to point to three different causes that we see and the remedies. First thing that you see in Scripture is that sin can be a source of depression. I want, to, I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. In Psalm 32, David is discussing his guilt over his sin. He doesn't elaborate on the background of it, some people say that this might have been in light of his adulterous affair with Bathsheba, but it is impossible to know for sure. But regardless, there was a serious rupture in his relationship with God. Verse 3 and 4 says, For when I kept silent, speaking of just him's confession of sin, he was silent. He just kept it to himself. My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. 
So David, we'll stop there. David was in deep despair. He speaks of his strength being dried up as by the heat of summer. You can only imagine, you know, those Palestinian summers and how it just would suck the life and vitality out of David. Of course, we just said that was a kind of a symptom that people experience, just this apathy and lack of vitality. David was experiencing this because of the guilt of his sin. He says in another psalm, I believe it's David, in, in verse uh, Psalm 38, Verses 3 to 6, if you want to turn over there. It's another powerful passage about the effects of sin on David's life. He says there, in verses 3 to 6, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. So friends, when we are sinful, whether through things that we do, sins of commission, sins of omission, things that we should be doing because, but we don't do, it ruptures our relationship with God. And God did not design us to sin. And I think sometimes we minimize the impact that our relationship with God has on this whole topic of depression. In his book, Out of the Blues, uh, Wayne Mack, he's a prominent biblical counselor, he discusses the progression of sin to depression. This is what he says, and he's exactly right. He says, after you and I sin, we feel guilty because of our conscience, right? We have a conscience, a natural-born kind of red alert that tells us we do something right or wrong, okay? And we're supposed to listen to that conscience that God gives us. It gives us this sense of guilt. It's a good sense of guilt. So if we sin, that conscience will go off and we have this uh, radar that we're supposed to follow. We're supposed to you know, confess that sin to God. And so that sets it off something. There's that sense of guilt. And maybe not only your conscience, but maybe someone else might point something out to you. Maybe in a loving way, maybe in a not loving way, but they point it out. So you have this guilt that's in your heart. And you know you should do something with it. But we don't. We let it fester. So instead of confessing our sins, we let it fester. And so then we feel guilt for not only the original action, but for the lack of action with the original action. Amen? And it starts snowballing and compounding itself. And so then you have this sin over here and this sin over here and this. And it's amazing how things start snowballing in our hearts. And as this compounds, I believe it can lead to depression, especially if that sin is of a more serious nature. Like you're just kind of drifting from God and you're, you don't really believe, you're struggling with whether you believe in Christ anymore and that just sort of starts compounding itself or, or maybe there was sexual immorality or maybe there was abortion or something in your life where there was a great sin. And the guilt of that will just start weighing on your spirit and friends mark it, it will also affect your body. You can't sin and have it affect your spirit and then your body's perfectly fine. Like I said, they are linked together. In the book that I, that I mentioned there, Wayne Mack shares about a time that he counseled a couple. The wife had been diagnosed by a, a secular, secular psychologist as being catatonic schizophrenic when she was 12 years old. And she tried to commit suicide several times after that. 
She was now 25 years old at the time and had been struggling with depression for 13 years. In the midst of the conversations, he learned that she, would, she was very sexually promiscuous as a young girl and now even in her marriage, being unfaithful. Her husband dismissed her actions as part of her sickness. That she wasn't responsible. So Wayne Mack asked the woman herself, do you feel responsible for what you have done? And she said yes. She acknowledged that what she had done was wrong. And so he challenged her to confess her sin and to repent. And she did. She turned to Christ that day in the session. She became a Christian. And that day marked a change in her life. It was not an overnight transformation, but the process of renewal had begun. And as for the depression, it slowly lifted from her life as she grew in Christ. So I think in every situation, the believer should examine their heart to see if there is unconfessed sin. But unfortunately, the first place that we should look is sometimes the last place that we actually do look, right? It's much easier to look at other things and other circumstances and other people than to look at ourselves in the mirror. We must seek repentance from sin and cleansing from the Lord. And I would also add that if there are people that we have hurt in our lives directly because of our sin, the Bible encourages us to confess our sins to each other. If you've slandered them, you should tell them. If you've stolen from them, you should tell them. If you've been unfaithful to your spouse, you should tell them. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. He's not just talking about physical healing. That's part of it. He's also talking about spiritual healing that comes when God's people confess their sins to one another. It can make such a difference when we confess our sins to one another as people experience the freedom of forgiveness. Listen to the difference it made in David's life. A man who was guilty of various things, and if whether this regarded Bathsheba or not, again, that would have been a great sin, but yet he found freedom because of the grace of God. In verse 5, go down with me if you will, to verse 5 it says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. In other words, he was genuinely repentant. This wasn't just, oh yeah, Lord, I did that. No, this was a grief over what he had done and a desire to change. He said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the inequity of my sin. Then in verses 10 and 11, David says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Do you see how David went from despairing? I mean, dried up, as he said earlier, by the heat of summer, basically is how his spirit felt, to rejoicing and praising the Lord, all because he humbled himself and confessed his sin to God. It's not God's will for His people to walk around burdened and guilty with the weight of our own sin. 
Psalm 103, verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. How about that? And you know what? That was in the Old Testament. When their promises were great, but we have greater promises. Amen? Jesus said that when he died on the cross, it is finished. It's done. You don't have to do penance for your sins. You don't have to try to jump through hoops. You don't have to try to earn God's favor somehow. Jesus paid it all on the cross. He didn't pay all of what He went through so you and I could be burdened by the weight of guilt. It detracts from the honor and the glory of what He did. It was sufficient what He did. And He's given us the Holy Spirit to apply these promises in a deeper and more profound way than what they experienced in the Old Covenant. It's a question of trusting what God has done for us, that He will forgive your sins, not just some of them, but all of them, no matter what you have done, no matter how many times you have done them, He will wipe your slate clean and give you the righteousness of Christ. Now someone might say, that they went through a depression, or maybe they know someone went through depression, and there was not overt sin. So is sin always the primary cause of depression? Not always. Not always. There are other causes. And that's what I want to pick up next week, to talk about these things that we see in God's Word that will hopefully help us to truly see and believe Jesus is greater. Let's have a word of prayer, and then if anybody would like to share anything, I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, things that you'd like to say to build us up here in Christ. Lord, we come to you today. And Lord, we know this is a heavy topic. Something that all of us perhaps have gone through, either ourselves or family members experience it in my family. And Lord, we want to come to you with that confidence and trust that you indeed in your word and by your Spirit's power give us all that we need for life and godliness. Lord, this morning here today, as I said, this is a message for folks who may be just going through a a milder form of despair, discouragement. Maybe there's some folks here today really battling some deep things. I pray you would build our trust that what your word says is true. And that, Lord, if we would humble ourselves and truly confess where we have fallen short before you, that your word promises, as it says in Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Lord, help us to come clean before you today. And Lord, if there's someone here today who's never trusted you for salvation, that Lord, their eyes might be open to the truth, even as they go through seasons of discouragement or despair. Lord, to see that there is hope when we come to the cross. That is why Jesus came to bring healing 
in our relationship with you, in our relationship with others, and in our own spirits, Lord. And Lord, I pray there's also, we know, much more to say in the next week. And I pray that you would help us to come moldable, teachable, studying your word ourselves in this upcoming week so how we can grow to sharpen each other and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen.